Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about differences that make a difference. Yes, it's a new Inappropriate Conversations podcast. I know I've been away for a while. I'll get to that in a moment, and I'll get to that in the context of the overall topic today about, on the one level, differences that make a difference, but on a different level, it's more about the question of how we might behave differently. But first, let me frame it with kind of a, a very general, but hopefully vivid, sports story. The clock is running down late in the game in American college football. This is probably not big-time, prime-time televised, you know, major college football with huge storied teams. Let's think of it more as being like a junior college game or something Division II, Division Three. But still, American college football, and we are in the fourth quarter. The coach of the team that is leading, the team that was favored to win, has a three-point lead. <clears throat> Maybe the score is 20-17, to 17, something along those lines. The opposing team has definitely made at least one field goal in the game. They are one for one on field goals, two for two on point after. And the team that is leading has either got a 20 to 17 lead because they've scored two touchdowns and two field goals, or maybe, more likely, maybe they've scored three touchdowns, but one of the point after attempts was a miss by the kicker. Between these two teams, the better kicker is on the other side of the field, and with a three point lead, that means that the team that was favored to win is very much in danger of one slip-up here late in the game in the fourth quarter could give the ball to the other team, and the other team might have a good chance of tying it up, forcing overtime. Or, of course, if you made a major mistake, the kind of slip-up on defense or special teams that is often so costly in the sport of American college football, you could lose the game. The final score could end up being something along the lines of 23 to 20 or 24 to 20. A three point lead is slim. And you can imagine that even if this game is being played at home, there's going to be a lot of nervous energy in the air that everything is not necessarily lining up for the favored team, despite the fact that they've played reasonably well. They have a lead and it's late in the game. As we zoom in, it is now a fourth down and 10 situation for the home team. And the coach. Is uh, got to decide what to do. Now, fourth down and 10 from your opponent's 20-yard line gives you lots of choices. If you've got a three-point lead, maybe you actually think about going for it on fourth and 10 at their 20 because the field goal would give you a six-point lead, still leaves you a little susceptible to losing the game by one if your opponent can score a late fourth-quarter touchdown, kick the extra point to win it. Plus, maybe you've got some doubts about your kicker. But this is not fourth down and 10 for the home team all the way on the other side of the field at the 20-yard line of the opponent. This coach is facing fourth down and 10 yards to go at his own 20-yard line. And despite that narrow lead, despite the fact that basically turning the ball over on downs right there, whether it be at the 20-yard line or the 29-yard line, not picking up all 10 yards, not getting that first down, puts the coach in a position where he is very likely handed his opponent, at the very least, a game-tying opportunity. If he gambles and goes for it on fourth down and 10 from his own 20-yard line, 
he's pretty much guaranteeing at least the palpable risk of overtime, if not losing the game. Now, there may be a lot of reasons why a coach would do that. Uh, Maybe the coach just believes in his defense, which is crazy. Or maybe he wants to send a message to his defense. Maybe this game is not a crucial regular season game with the prospect of playoffs on the line. Because when you're talking about Division Two, Three football, uh, junior college football, it, playoffs are a very real thing at that level of college football. It's it's not so much a popularity contest as it is with a number, a limited number of teams at the highest levels of what we would call BCS football. So even a team that's had a an okay season, one or two losses, still has a shot at the playoffs in in this particular level of football I'm describing. And you certainly don't know how the crowd would react if the coach ran that kind of play and essentially threw away what might be, you know, a much better chance of winning. But that's what he does. Fourth down, 10, ball to zone 20. And maybe because of the fact that they've got such a a talented kicker on the other side, he doesn't throw the football on fourth and 10. He isn't necessarily all or nothing. I'm going to pick up 10 yards or more where I'm going to give the opponent the ball right here at the 20. Maybe he runs the ball up the middle on sort of a delayed draw play because he's feeling like, you know, the worst thing that I could do is give them the ball right here at the 20. If we don't make this fourth and 10, I at least want to get seven or eight or nine yards, make it close, force a measurement, something. Because if he can get a first down, he might be able to put in what they call the four-minute offense and run the clock all the way out. But in this case, he's, he's going for it on fourth and 10. And he's going for it with what's basically a run up the middle. I know that's that's a very unfair way of describing a, a somewhat artful play like a delayed draw where you line up, you're trying to convince the defense, your opponent, the opponent's coaching staff that you are going to throw the football. And obviously in fourth and 10, you probably would. So you line up with extra wide receivers. You're, be- you're basically in a pass blocking kind of a, of a message that your offensive line is giving to the defense. And then when the quarterback drops back, you surprise everybody by handing the ball to the running back and trying to catch the defense off guard by running it in such an obvious passing situation. But it's nevertheless obviously true that on a very uh, aggressive or reckless, depending on your perspective, run up the middle on 4th and 10 from your own 20-yard line, you know this game is not going to go the way that coach wanted. And his team is probably at that point crossing their fingers and hoping that overtime is the worst result that they're facing with that kind of a a momentum shift, especially if the team, and obviously the crowd, not prepared for that kind of a sudden, unexpected gamble. My question for us today is how would this coach have behaved differently than what he did if he actually wanted his team to lose? If he was trying to throw the game? If he wanted to annoy his players and coaches by forcing the near inevitable overtime to see what was his team, what would his team do in overtime? Or maybe he wanted to put his team really up against it and see what, how they might handle a loss or a loss under pressure. The main thing is, how would he have behaved differently if he was colluding with bookmakers or other, the other team's boosters even to throw the game? And that is a question I've been wrestling with, although I haven't recently observed a situation like this on the American college football fields across the country. But the thought has occurred to me in other aspects of politics, uh, religion, popular culture, the things that inappropriate conversations is all about. 
Let's have an inappropriate conversation about sex, drugs, rock and roll, politics, religion, popular culture. And when I'm looking at those things, or when I have been looking at those things, this question has popped very prominently into my mind in, in repeated ways. How would this person have behaved differently if they wanted the bad result to occur? And I'm going to start by pointing that finger directly at me. How would I have behaved differently as the host of an Inappropriate Conversations podcast that began its life in 2010 and stretched well into 2011 and somewhat into 12 with a weekly release schedule? Every week, on the nose, for the first part of uh, 2010 in particular, sound quality was a little bit questionable. Um, editing was a skill that was being learned. I was recording every week because that's how you practice. That's how you learn. That's how you uh, engage in the necessary discipline to sort of get comfortable with the right technique to get better. But I started this with more than 100 inappropriate conversations, topics lined up, all of them or almost all of them with an, with an appropriate different drummer lined up next to it. So I was able to get two or three years under my belt because I had a plan. And as I move through from 2012 into 13, 14, 15, so forth, that plan continued to evolve. And what I learned about myself in, say, the last nine or ten months is that if that plan breaks down, my ability to do what I've done, my consistency in recording, uh, my ability to maintain a flow of topics and to connect the dots between the idea of the show and the different drummer for the show, breaks down with it. And somewhere after September of 2021, I had to take time to say, I'm either going to have to rebuild my schedule from scratch and sort of catch up, pick a new starting point and jump back in with maybe a monthly flow of shows. Because there was no way in, with changes in my life, there was no way I was going to be able to maintain anything close to weekly or even bi-weekly. But I got through the pandemic okay because I had a plan. You know, when I didn't even know that there was going to be a sudden shift to working from home um, on, you know, my regular job. I had a strategy for what I was going to do in the early part of that year just to maintain a, a schedule and to mix in this new concept that I was working on called talkback episodes. I had laid out 70, 80, 90 past shows that had aired at Inappropriate Conversations via Podbean prior to, call it the summer of 2017. I picked a point on the calendar for 2017 where I wanted inappropriate conversations as an experience to begin on Spotify. And I executed that part of the plan. And then the idea of what to do with the seven or eight years of, of episodes before that was to bring back the ones that made sense to bring back, perhaps in some sort of a sequential order. Again, got to have a plan. At least that's the way I look at things. And introduce them as talkback episodes so that maybe I could still put out a couple of shows a month but maybe only one of them would be from scratch new material as I was feeling a certain sense of winding down. hate to say it, but it's probably true. Using the past episodes as a way of getting those shows onto Spotify. When the schedule broke down on the new episode side of Inappropriate Conversations, it likewise broke down on the talkback strategy. The strategy was there. The schedule was clear. The schedule hadn't really been messed up at all, but that inability to record hit kind of both sides. The third piece of what I do in podcast recording, at least on my own feed here at Inappropriate Conversations and at the website inappropriateconversations.org, is Walk the Earth. But I noticed as I was kind of preparing myself for this show that the last question answered on Walk the Earth was Walk the Earth 59, 
it was released September of the year before, in 2020. This really isn't a Walk the Earth episode, but what happened on the Walk the Earth side was between September of 2020 and, say, November, late October, November, the church that I have joined, the church that we chronicled moving to when we were doing the Walk the Earth show to, to move away from the situation that was unhealthy and the questions that were raised by this notion of changing denominations, the church we moved to had finally established a building. And anyone who's listened to Walk the Earth much a lot of the early journey was first off deciding kind of where to go if we were going to pull up anchor and sail away from the United Methodist congregation we'd been attending for 15 plus years. But where were we going to go? Was it going to be another United Methodist denomination? Was it going to be another one? We visited a ton of different denominations. So part of it was finding a new direction. But even when we found the church that, we've, that we later joined, that church spent most of our experience with it as a church that didn't have a building, didn't have a home. And I didn't do much to chronicle any questions I had related to the process of building that church. Uh, surprises that come your way in terms of, of fundraising and financing and building a new building and uh, what it means to build a building when there's abandoned churches that are, you know, scattered all over the real estate of the Tri-County area, let's call it. I didn't address any of those questions. It wasn't something that I chose to make time for. But it really hit me when the time came to actually move in and begin attending church in person for the first time, uh, for the first time in more than a year or so because of the pandemic, but for the first time with a building that wasn't borrowed in a decade or more for this particular congregation. Um, I had questions queued up about what it means to turn that virtual experience into an in-person experience. I just never got to answering those questions in the last year. I guess you might say I was too busy living it. But it's been almost two years since a Walk the Earth question was answered. And as I'm recording this, it's been almost a year since there was an Inappropriate Conversations podcast, depending on how you look at the relationship between late July and last September. Technically, I suppose it's a little bit more than 10 months, but it feels even longer to me. And the question I've been asking myself is, in that time between the end of September and now, how would I have behaved differently if I was pod-fading and shutting all of this down. And the only difference I can really see is inaction, indecision. I've let things lie. I didn't do anything to affirmatively, affirmatively call out that I was going to be on a hiatus because the hiatus, in many ways, wasn't actually planned. And I didn't do anything to pick some date to come back. And I never actually came to a final decision about, well, Will I be coming back? And if so, what does the new normal look like? Even as I'm making this recording, I don't know the answer to what the new normal looks like. But I think that ties in a little bit with our different drummer. For this episode, it's David Hayward. He's also known as the artist behind Naked Pastor. And for him, one of my favorite, saying, my favorite sayings from him is, maybe questions are the answer. Let me start the easy way with a really succinct blurb that's available at NakedPastor.com. NakedPastor.com seems like a great way to start with David Hayward. It's got sections for his prints, cartoons, drawings, paintings, merchandise, etc. But to answer the question, what is Naked Pastor? He answers it this way. A former pastor turned cartoonist. That's sort of the simple way of describing it. But it, 
It goes on to say David Hayward is the naked pastor. After 30 years in the church, he left the ministry to pursue his passion for art. His work challenges the status quo, deconstructs dogma, and promotes critical thinking. This may be a self-described statement, but it's a self-described statement that I think that I can wholeheartedly agree with. I think he's got it right. His latest book is called Flip It Like This, and it has very recently been published, so hardback only at this point in time. I'll do a little bit of a look back to his publishing, uh, just kind of maybe even a wander through his uh, page on Amazon.com for books, because as I've noted before with different drummers, authors, despite the fact that they write for a living, tend to have the least detailed bios online. Uh, I don't know whether there's a you know solid statistical data to back this up, but from looking, my experience is you can get a great deal of detail in a place like Wikipedia for a musician, for a film director, certainly for politicians and other public figures, but for authors, there tends to be either no page at all, from a Wikipedia perspective, or not much there. But in the About the Artist section of his latest book, Flip It Like This, he kind of you know makes a couple of points that I'll just dive into briefly. He served as a pastor for most of his career, but in 2010 he left professional paid clergy. His cartoons and other artwork have found their way all around the world. He and his wife Lisa, who live in uh, New Brunswick in Canada, have three grown children. The interesting thing to me about naked pastor maybe the reason i feel like he's not just a great different drummer period but for this topic and for me as i struggle with the how would i have handled this hobby if you want to call it that differently is that you know david hayward chose to leave one professional career as a pastor and channel both his beliefs and his questions into this other avenue uh, basically putting aside the pulpit and picking up pencil and paper along the way. The latest book is a great place to start, and the reason I say that is that, as uh, even acknowledged directly by Hayward in the preface of the book, it's kind of a greatest hits collection. I have two of his books that have been most recently purchased. I could have more, but I know for sure, too, I have Question the Answers, or Questions Are the Answers. That one works as a bit of a background story, kind of an origin story. Uh, Naked Pastor and the Search for Understanding was the, you know, the subtext for it. This was released in July of 2015. He had done books before. Naked Pastor 101, Without a Vision, My People Prosper, The Liberation of Sophia, The Art of Coming Out, Cartoons for the LGBT Community. That was in 2014. But to me, I, I kind of think of starting with Questions Are the Answer because that book from 2015 does talk very directly about his decisions, his experiences, and his decisions to move from being the pastor of a church or part of the part of the clergy of a church to stepping out on his own with no certainty whatsoever that what he was being led to do uh, artistically would be a calling or would be commercially successful or would be both. I think having a greatest hits book out this year is kind of an indication that maybe the answer is, yeah, both that this has been a successful venture. Flip It Like This was officially released July 19th, 2022. In it, the preface, Hayward says this, Viewers' responses to my work have ranged from enraged to validated to enlightened and everything in between. Those are pretty powerful emotional responses. Deep, sustained reactions 
my writing alone would never get. Frankly, I didn't expect my cartoons would be so polarizing. But affirming, acceptance, inclusion, and love have always been offensive to some people, especially those who consider themselves the gatekeepers of who's in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't, who meets the criteria and who doesn't. Alas, things haven't changed much in that regard since I began drawing, Hayward writes, but I will keep cartooning because the cartoons seem to be doing something good. I love their direct, effective, and rapid way of communicating what I believe to be true. Hayward has, I guess I would say, been blessed with the ability to find a way, a, a truly central artistic way, of saying in succinct and easy-to-understand ways what he truly thinks and believes, and to do so in a way that actually does get those polarizing responses. Good for him on that. He has built a substantial audience, and that audience deserves to continue growing. As I turn that over and look inward from that to inappropriate conversations, I'm really quite aware that even though more than a decade earlier I'd walked away from the concept of any sort of journalism or editing or uh, writing of columns or any sort of formal authorship, that that wasn't a path that felt like it was the right way forward for me. But in around 2009 and 2010, podcasting did feel like a better way, maybe maybe a uniquely Greg way of getting that out and expressing it. I've always considered myself to be uh, more of a writer and less of a painter of pictures, as Hayward would be. My motto is, life's an essay test, you're obliged to give essay answers. But Hayward's work in particular reminds me, probably reminds a lot of people, that in the simplicity of a drawing, a picture is indeed worth a thousand words. And for that reason, and for being so transparent about the struggle of where the church gets it wrong, and how to live in right relationship with your faith, knowing how often the church gets it wrong. Well, that makes David Hayward a different drummer. So back to the question at hand for me. I think my strategy, the way I'm going to answer the question I'm facing on how would I do this differently, is I'm going to look very seriously at the concept that this is probably my 293rd podcast recording. There are, by my count, if we don't include intros to talkback episodes, guest appearances on other shows, things like Harmony Springs Gives Voice, I'm going to say that this one is uh, episode 234, of inappropriate conversations, coupled with the last Walk the Earth being 59, that I'm I'm heading toward 293. I have no personal commitment to get to some milestone concept like 300. If I continue to record, it's because something has led me to pick up the microphone and record, which means that the uh, content of inappropriate conversations and Walk the Earth on the feed is going to continue to be potentially extremely sporadic. And I know that. And it's something I'm going to have to live with. But I have no commitment at this point to just shut it down. So how would I behave differently if I was pod fading? Well, I would probably call that out here. But I'm doing the opposite. I'm not pod fading. I'm changing my mind at the last minute and I'm punting the ball on 4th and 10 from my own 20-yard line to give my team the best chance to succeed. I'm not naive about what this means, though. There's a couple of things before I get back into this 
how would we behave differently concept, uh, just as kind of a statement of intent. If I were to to decide to be more regular or to really steer into the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, or for that matter, Walk the Earth, there are things I would have to do that I'm not prepared to invest a lot of time in right now. I would need to reset a schedule, because clearly that's how I succeed. I would need to uh, deal with the uh, deal with the website, uh, inappropriateconversations.org, still a redirect if you go to inappropriateconversations.com. Hasn't really been substantially touched since 2010. It's not mobile-enabled. I was never terribly worried about that, because to me, the main reason I went there was to um, get information from the blurbs, from the audio, from the monthly schedule, from the timing of when shows came out. But you know, over time, there's just been a little bit of a devolution there. Uh, past inappropriate conversations would refer to the Podbean website. Well, that's not true anymore. Past inappropriate conversations would have promos for podcasts that I loved and admired that don't exist anymore. Uh, when I started here, uh, three pillars I kind of called out in the very first episode, audio quality, sketchy and all, was my inspirations coming from Simply Syndicated, doesn't exist anymore, Take Him With You, not an ongoing podcast, and Dan Carlin, especially Dan Carlin's Common Sense. Dan Carlin is still doing his thing, but Common Sense is kind of in the same state that Inappropriate Conversations is in. It's not necessarily dead, but there, haven't, there hasn't, been, hasn't been much life to it. And even his hardcore history shows have continued to lean on the length. They've been longer, but only two or three a year instead of, you know, instead of two or three hour shows once a month, they're more like five or six hour shows twice a year. So those pillars have also, over time, seen the wear and tear of some of the changes. Whether those changes be, in my case, changes in um, outside this you know, house where where I've got job responsibilities. Now I've got a church with a location. Some of those things just change the dynamic or whatever else they may be. Things are different now. The right navigation bar at inappropriateconversations.org no longer has that monthly schedule that can be used. So to lean into it, I would have to rebuild the website or do some substantial landscaping, I guess, for want of a better word, uh, virtual landscaping on that website. Uh, I don't have a commitment to do that anytime soon. And what that's led me to do is to look very seriously at this talkback concept and tell myself, you know, that was an interesting idea. And there is certainly a possible world where that was going to work and work really well. We don't live in that world. That possible world is not the actual world. Time to move on. And maybe the right thing I can do for the website being old and increasingly feeling a little unreliable and the fact that I'm not going to try to maintain any regular release schedule through talkback episodes is to take the other path. And that's to say, I know I've said many times in recent episodes that my starting point for the Inappropriate Conversations podcast on Spotify is June or July of 2017. Maybe it's time to just unleash the hounds. How would I behave differently if I didn't want to communicate that I was pod fading? Well, I don't know. Maybe one of the things I would do would be just to go all the way back to episode one and attempt to make that available more widely in all the podcatchers that I can. And I don't know what will happen when I suddenly say, hey, here's 150 or 160 more episodes on these feeds. Some of those episodes may not be, may not be allowed, may not render. At least one of them, Inappropriate Conversations number 150, opening the scriptures, is three and a half hours long. 
I'm totally okay if Spotify has a protocol that just skips that one because they do have a rule about that kind of length. Not trying to violate the rules, not trying to trick anybody. It's okay if I release all of these shows, and at least for Spotify, they're missing episodes. For a variety of reasons, I'm fine with that. I also acknowledge that going back to episode one means going back to the worst sound quality and sort of exposing the experiment as the as the person doing the show was learning how to do it. Uh, I've never been uncomfortable with that. I guess I'm okay with it, but now it's it's okay with that before a different audience on a different platform. So that's likely where this is heading. Me answering the question of what would I do differently if I weren't pod fading, release all the past shows as publicly as possible, and make no commitment either way to any sort of regular schedule. Leaving that door open for when it's time to record, that's when I'll record. This is your Auntie Vera Charles or your Auntie Scott or Scott or just don't call me late for dinner. Reminding you that the Pride 48 live streaming weekend is happening July 29th through the 31st, 2022. We hope to see you there in the chat room for an amazing weekend of live LGBTQ plus podcasting. For more information, head on over to Pride48.com where they've got Pride just flowing right out every orifice on there. It's it can be unpretty at times. So why record now? Why in July, when college football isn't even playing, start a show like this with a college football analogy? Well, there's two reasons for why recording right now. One of them is the annual Pride 48 streaming weekend is coming up this upcoming Friday night. So I wanted to make sure that I had a chance to play the promos for that because I've always been a huge supporter of Pride 48 and even uh, at times been able to participate in the in-person events. Obviously, there has not been an in-person event for a while now because of COVID-19, among other reasons. I've never really been part of the streaming weekend. It's just the nature of the low-tech aspect of this audio blog. But I'm off, I've very consistently been a listener and even a chat room participant over the years because I take being an ally very seriously and I enjoy these shows. This year, that weekend is going to be July 29th through 31st, starting Friday night. All the information, as said in the ad, is available at Pride48.com. So one reason is making sure that at least for one show, for my one and only show of 2022, if that's the way this plays out, I still do so in a way that acknowledges my somewhat indirect affiliation with Pride48 and my absolute support for the event. There is talk that this is the penultimate event, that even for Pride48, they're experiencing some of the same things I am, in terms of the ebbs and the flows of what it's what it's like to be both a, a creator and a consumer of podcasts, maybe next year at this time will be the last Pride 48 live streaming event. We will have to see. This year at least is being talked about as the next to the last if things play out the way they've been forecasted to go. All the more reason to listen in and participate. The other reason, though, is current events. I've been asking the question of how would we behave differently if, on 
a wide variety of topics. Um, how, for example, would Justice Clarence Thomas behave differently if he was colluding with his wife to support a potentially violent coup to overthrow a United States election and put a former president into power, despite the fact that he was not elected either time by the popular vote, not in 2020 in the Electoral College. And frankly, there's questions in 2016 about whether his win had something to do with election data that was shared with Russian military intelligence, that there's been an asterisk on the entire Donald Trump political experience for a variety of reasons. The fact is he did not win the requisite electoral votes in 2020, lost the popular vote by something like 7 million. But if you were a very, you know, I'm going to even say almost radical right conservative, if you were married to Clarence Thomas and you were helping to finance and organize what happened on January 6th, if you were feet on the ground participating in some of the buildup to January 6th, and you're now... Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. How would you behave differently if you were part of the plot? If you were in on it directly? If your, if your job was to help make sure that it was all covered up and handled as covertly as possible? How would you have behaved differently? Because I think you might have refused to acknowledge your knowledge of your wife's connection with the events that happened in January 6th and the crimes that were committed by others potentially even her. You wouldn't acknowledge that at all if you were part of the part of the plot. You certainly would try to persuade your fellow justices to vote to deny the sharing of documents and information with a congressional investigative committee looking into what happened on that day and in the events leading up to that day. And if you couldn't persuade them, you would absolutely make a statement by voting against it. You would be the one Supreme Court justice who voted against the right of the U.S. Congress to exercise oversight over the administrative branch and, and other elements of our nation from a legislative perspective to say crimes were committed here, laws were broken, and we need to get to the bottom of it and make sure that we do whatever we have to do to make sure that those laws don't get broken in this same way again. Congress was doing its job. Eight of the Supreme Court justices kind of did their job. One of them didn't. One of them tried to cover up what happened on January 6th. It could be just a coincidence that he was trying to cover up what happened on January 6th, despite the fact that he was married to somebody who was funding and organizing and participating in some of those activities related to January 6th. How would he have behaved differently? What more could he possibly have done if he was part of the plot? When I worked in retail stores, one of the places where I invested some energy, because I think I was naturally good at it, was front-end management. Front-end management is all things related to the cashiers, the cash wrap, cash management, deposits, banking, just trying to make sure that your your cash register system is, is running as smoothly as it can, that you don't have silly situations where a cashier can't make change for somebody because they ran out of fives or ones or quarters or whatever. It's cash management. And one of the things I told my cashiers very consistently in all those years, especially when it came to policies related to returns and refunds, was that as a cashier, when you're handed that additional responsibility, when I, as a somebody who was running a store, or potentially even owning a store, I'm entrusting you with the cash, 
you have an obligation to function as a citizen above suspicion. You don't have the right to fall anywhere near below that standard by even a scintilla. There should never be anyone who looks at how you're handling a refund and asks the question of, hey, is that person doing something wrong? Is that cashier doing this off the books and under the table? Is that cashier pocketing the cash? Is that cashier taking refunds for a buddy of his where the product was stolen or the product uh, doesn't even belong in this retail supply chain and should not have been refunded because it's not a legitimate return? You, you can't not just do those things. You, can't, you have to not do those things, but you also have to be a citizen above suspicion. You have to make sure that nobody could innocently mistake your behavior for that kind of collusion. No one should ever be able to pull me aside as the front-end manager of a, of a retail operation and point to you and say, hey, how would that cashier have behaved differently if they were running some sort of internal embezzlement ring? And that was the thing I conveyed to my cashiers. I, I don't just need you to execute the cash activities perfectly. That if you come up short, you've stolen from the company, you've stolen from me. If you come up over, you've stolen from the customer, which is arguably worse. Because the customer is the lifeblood of everything we do. We can't have that customer having this nagging feeling in the back of their head that that store somehow costs more than I thought it should. Because... I paid with a 20. I should have gotten 12 back. I only got two back. I, don't, I didn't catch it at the time. I didn't realize I was shortchanged. The cashier probably didn't shortchange me on purpose. But now in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, boy, their prices must be higher than I think because I just, it seemed like that whole thing cost me more. You can't come up over. You can't come up short. And you've got to act as a citizen above suspicion at all times. I don't want anybody thinking that you're pulling some shenanigans that might make you come up over or short or create some sort of internal theft scenario. None of that. You not just have to be perfect. You have to avoid any appearance of impropriety. Well, where do I get the expression appearance of impropriety? I think probably the most common used for use for that phrase is the judiciary. We expect judges to not even convey even the appearance of impropriety. And yet in this country today, we have a different, much, much, much lower standard for the highest court in the land than we do for every other court in the land. We might actually strip a judge of their position for conveying an appearance of impropriety at a district court level, but the Supreme Court just laughs it off. How would they behave differently if they were part of the plot to overthrow the government? How? That has struck me as a, as a glaring example, but it's not the only one. If you look at the the professional and official activities of Texas Governor Greg Abbott over the last, say, two, three, four years. And you looked at what he had done in the area of gun control, gun rights, gun legislation, and asked yourself, what if Greg Abbott was part of a plot to murder school children in a small town in Texas? What if he somehow knew somebody who was intending, the second he turned 18 years old, to buy weapons of war and go in and slaughter as many kids and teachers as he possibly could? What if Abbott was aware of that plot, but knew several years ago that the laws of the state of Texas might interfere somehow with the execution of that? Would he push for legislative changes? Would he ask for new bills to be introduced? Would he sign law into law bills that other people had passed that would conveniently enable or empower this slaughter of innocent kids and teachers? Or would, at the very least, 
almost accidentally get rid of any unintended hurdles or roadblocks that might be in the way. And if the governor was part of the plot, if the if the murders that happened in Uvalde, Texas this year was something that the governor was trying to do, and I'm absolutely not making any accusations here. This is a thought experiment. It's a hypothetical question. But what would Governor Abbott have done differently if he was part of the plot? Because I'm struggling to think of anything he did that made the the plans of the murderer harder in any way. And I can find numerous examples of things he did that actually made the plot to murder school children and teachers, if necessary, as a means to an end to kill school children. He did a lot of things that made that easier. And it begs the question for me, how would you behave differently if you were part of the plot? And it isn't an accusation that somebody has engaged in conspiracy because I don't have any evidence to support that idea. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I want people who were citizens above suspicion. I want it to be almost impossible that anyone could credibly accuse a sitting Supreme Court justice of being part of a plot to overthrow the government. I would like to think that nobody would look at my work if I were somehow the governor of a state and say, look, every bill you passed sort of paved the way to this to this mass killing. I would never want anybody to even attempt to connect those dots about me. And I would wonder how you'd respond if those dots seemed to come together so, so perfectly. This is not political. I'm a radical moderate. I'm indifferent and frankly hostile to both the Democratic and Republican parties. I understand the concept that voting is not about a dating marital relationship. It's about you know, riding the bus. You know, it's, it's a means to an end. It's uh, trying to support the things that have to be supported for the least bad results to happen. So I, I'm very well aware of what I do at the voting booth. I'm not apathetic in the least. I'm aggressive. I'm radical. But I'm a moderate. I'm not really trying to point any political fingers here or make any political, hey, let's actually go back into Uvalde, Texas and venture into the day that the killings occurred and to the hallways outside the classroom at the time that the killings were uh, about to occur and occurring and yet still going to occur some more while a variety of police officers were, let's say, inactive. I don't know whether they were indecisive but they were definitely inactive for almost an hour, ballpark an hour, stood there trying to figure out what to do while the killer was still in the classroom terrorizing students and later murdering students. And that indecision is not inherently Republican or Democrat. That indecision, in my opinion, is not inherently liberal or conservative. It may be fair to say that your average Texas police officer is more likely to be conservative than liberal, but I'm not interested in going there. My question is a very simple one. If you're a police officer, especially if you're one with some element of command and control in that situation, called to a mass shooting inside a school, having identified exactly which classroom or classrooms connected that that killer is in, knowing that there are still living potential victims inside the room at the same time, how would you have behaved differently if you were part of the plot, if you were in, in league with the killer, and if you wanted to help him maximize the murder of more kids if possible. I'm not saying any police officer in Uvalde, Texas, in the state of Texas, uh, anyone associated with that school district, in any way wanted what happened to happen, had any communication with the killer, uh, in any way or okay or happy or any. I'm not saying anything like that. But what I'm asking is a very simple uh, almost 
too simple thought experiment. How would the police have behaved differently if they were part of the plot? And how do you live with yourself if you wake up the next day and say, you know what? My actions or inactions led to this. I did not help. I may not have been responsible for every single victim that day, but there are victims that were victims not just of the behavior of the killer, but my inability to act, my inability to strategize, my inability to coordinate command and control, my inability to intervene. And whether that is part of an actual physical roadblock, some real problem that created an impediment to intervene, or whether it was, for want of a better word, psychological or you know, mental, whether it was a planning problem, whether it was a training problem, whatever it was, the question is the same. How would you have behaved differently if you were actually trying to stop the murderer instead of helping the murderer? These the actions look exactly like I think the actions might look if the game plan was to secure the area, prevent parents or other rogue elements of law enforcement from getting involved in any way, and protecting the ability of that killer to complete his planned crime. Now, again, nobody believes that that was some sort of a plan by law enforcement on the scene in Uvalde, Texas. But the question remains, if you had it to do over, if you could change things, what would you change? And would the changes be changes to, I don't know, intervene to stop this? To, if you're Governor Abbott, create legislative hurdles to prevent it? If you were the U.S. Supreme Court to pass laws with a more balanced understanding of what 70 to 80 to 90 percent of the country believes is true about what's actually happening on the street and how what's happening on the street in the year 2022 is maybe different from what colonial Americans experienced in the period between the Articles of Confederation and the drafting of the United States Constitution. Would you behave differently? Because right now, in the three examples I've used, I'm looking at the Supreme Court I'm looking at the administrative branch in the state of Texas. I'm looking at law enforcement on, you know, feet on the ground in Uvalde, Texas. Not just the ones that are from that community, but even the ones who came in to join. And I'm asking myself this same question that I posed to myself earlier in this podcast. How would you behave differently if you really did genuinely want a different result? And what does it say about you if the result you got looks like a result you wanted when that result is obviously, horrifically negative. This is a question that I don't think we have great answers to. I'm not raising the question today because I think that I have the answers. But one of the ways that we can make differences that would make a difference is to continue asking ourselves these kinds of questions. And perhaps, whether through the ballot box or other means, putting the appropriate amount of pressure on people who are in positions of leadership so that they understand that as citizens of this country, we have the same rights that I had as the manager of a store, or my customers had as the manager, as, as customers in the store I managed, or as someone who goes in to pay a traffic ticket or fine in some sort of local courtroom. We have the right to expect that our leaders are going to be citizens above suspicion that they are going to take actions that do not make it look like they are somehow part of the plot, that we do not want to be sitting in the stands cheering on coaches whose behavior looks exactly the same as it would be if they were taking bribes from the opponent's team's boosters or bookmakers to throw the game.
I'm not saying that there's not an acceptable situation. On fourth down and 10 yards to go from your own 20-yard line with a narrow three-point lead and less than five minutes to play in the game, I'm not saying that it's never appropriate to go for it on fourth and 10. I'm not. Your punter could be severely injured. You could actually have no viable option in terms of a backup punter. You could have the greatest quarterback-wide receiver combination in the history of American junior college football, and you believe your best chance to win is to drop back and throw the ball to that guy. Or you could even believe that everyone in the stadium, including your opponent's coaching staff and players, know that, so you're going to trick them with a delayed draw. I'm not saying you can't go for it on 4th and 10 from your 20. I'm just saying you can't go for it on 4th and 10 from your 20. And also have an expectation that the crowd in the stands that has supported the team you're coaching for far longer than you've been the coach of the team, to be honest about fandom, isn't going to ask the question, dude, what would you have done differently if you were trying to throw this game? Because that's a question that we as citizens always have a right to ask. And maybe getting answers to questions like that actually will do something that today's show is all about. Maybe it will raise a question that makes a difference. Maybe the differences that make a difference are challenging the people in charge to say, I'm expecting better. I'm expecting recusal where recusal is appropriate. I'm expecting laws that don't empower mass shooting with shrugs of shoulders like there's nothing we can do when the inevitable happens. And I'm expecting law enforcement officers to take seriously the fact that we're not done having malevolent people enter into places where large numbers of people are forced to congregate against their will. You might decide you're not going to go to church on Sunday. I don't think if you're elementary, junior high school, high school, I don't think you get to decide you're not going to go to school. So we can do better at intercepting when someone is shooting those fish in a barrel. I don't think the answer is making sure that students don't have to go to school. But I do think the answer might be that law enforcement officers have to enforce the law. That is what I mean by differences that make a difference. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.